Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I am really excited to have with us Gustavo Osario, otherwise known as Goose. Goose is a strength and conditioning coach at the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee and is based in Chula Vista in beautiful Southern California, San Diego and has been there for, ooh, maybe he's going to tell us how long he's been there for. Welcome to the show, Goose. Hi, Liz. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Good to talk to you too. So give us a little bit of background about yourself and how long you've worked at the USOPC for. Sure. So I've been uh, working here out in Chula Vista for three and a half years. I'm a Paralympic strength and conditioning coach with the USOPC, and my main responsibility is the Paralympic track and field team. So that includes our resident athletes here and also a good portion of our national team that's dispersed throughout the whole country at you know, different colleges, high schools, training sites. And I also work with one of our wheelchair quad tennis athletes for Team USA. And so how many athletes in total do you have both at Chula and also off-site? In total, I think uh, at Chula, I believe this year I'll have 19. Offsite right now I have I believe I'm at 14 for my offsite athletes. Wow, that's a pretty so decent just a little workload. bit over 30. Yeah, keeps you busy, I'm sure. Um, how do you and sort of what what impairments do you have in terms of oh, the the athletes um, that you're coaching? So I work with a bit of everything to be honest. Uh, within track and field, I'm pretty sure I have an athlete either male and female, within every impairment. So visually impaired, some type of upper or lower body, uh, limb deficiency, amputees, wheelchair athletes, and some type of CP, so coordination impairments, mm-hmm. as well as a short stature athlete. Yeah, you do, you do cross the spectrum, don't you? And so how do you approach programming? I you know, uh, uh, I'm pretty decently versed. <laughs> uh, okay, so the way I tend to approach programming, whether it's for, you know, able-bodied athletes or uh, Paralympic athletes, first and foremost, I start by doing a needs analysis of the sport. This is how I can determine, you know, the KPIs or what movements or physical qualities they need to be successful in each sport or event. From there, we take a, every athlete through a trainability assessment. And this just gives me a general idea of where this athlete is within their physical development, as well as it gives me some sort of data on how much their impairment affects their ability to train, but also their ability to adapt. So if we want to break strength and conditioning down into, like, say, the three main areas that I have control over, right, that's going to be their strength and power development, that's going to be their conditioning and their fitness training and mm-hmm. their mobility and flexibility. So for the strength and power development, I like to take a movement-based approach and I just work backwards from what the end goal uh, is going to be. So let's say track and field, right? Track and field is pretty straightforward because in Paralympic track, we don't have the hurdles and we don't have the pole vault which, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, are the more dynamic of the events. For everything else, whether it's sprinting, jumping, throwing, or the distance events, you're trying to repeat an action, right? You're repeating a stride, you're repeating a movement pattern over and over, 
while you know you are training all year round to tweak the biomechanics, the body positions, the physical output, and the technique, it's a repeated action. Yeah. So I just need to dissect what type what type of movements are going to be the most beneficial for each athlete, and then how we can train those within the like say the weight room. Mm-hmm. Now for the conditioning and the fitness. This is where we look at the demands of the sport from an energy systems and a duration of play standpoint. So how long do how long does the sport take? You know, uh, let's talk wheelchair tennis, for example, right? Matches can go anywhere between an hour and a half to three hours. What are the demands of the sport? Well, repeat sprint ability is one of them. We need some type of agility work in there, but we also need an aerobic base to drive that recovery and make sure those outputs can stay fairly high throughout mm-hmm. a three-hour match, but yeah. also to make sure the athlete can bounce back if they have two to three matches within a day, if it's a long turn or if it's a short tournament mm-hmm. and everything's kind of bunched together. So, you know, those are the decisions that, or excuse me, the, the that's what's going to influence how we go about training them uh, from a fitness standpoint, whether it's on the court, off the court, um, whether we are trying to target aerobic, lactic, or alactic um, energy systems. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, the mobility and flexibility work. Uh, this is where I use the data from, say, a trainability assessment and look at areas of the body that may need improvement. And these can be very general or very sport-specific. And, you know, when I'm when I'm thinking about mobility and flexibility work, whether it's stuff that we add into the prehab or the cool down for each athlete, I'm not looking for perfect symmetry, right? First yeah. and foremost, the body's not perfectly symmetrical and the sport alone doesn't need you to be symmetrical. On the track, we're always turning left. You're always yeah. throwing to one side. You have a dominant side of your body and your body's not symmetrical, you know, just to, to begin with. So what I'm looking for here is just preventing muscle imbalances from getting to the point where they start to inhibit performance, Mm -hmm. whether that's inhibiting range of motions, whether that's inhibiting their ability to perform a movement or get in a specific posture. You know, that's what we're really trying to target with our mobility work. Right. And does that, obviously that will differ between impairment types because some people have inherent uh, imbalances between both sides. So how do you kind of account for that or, or what do you do in those instances? Well, that's a great question. And yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. No athlete's going to be the same, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're within the same classification and they compete within the same event, each athlete is going to have different, different ranges to their ability, whether that's from the impairments, that can come from individual differences, their training age, but also the severity of their injury. So this is why each athlete needs to, like, I need to take an individual approach with each athlete, which is why a lot of this initial assessment data is so useful, just so I have a general idea of where to start with them. And then, to be honest with you, a lot of it is uh, trial and error. Just yeah. Because I might have an idea of what an athlete might be able to do, and then we try it, and it completely fails. So <laughs> that's where it's on me to, one, be creative, but two, either backtrack or regress movements, progress movements, just to 
you know, keep the end goal in mind, but yeah. also meet the athlete where they're at. Yeah. And so what have you learned? Like you've, you said that you've been there with US Paralympics for the last three and a half years. And obviously you've got some history mm -hmm. in various sports and, and a collegiate setting before that. So what are the big learnings that you've had over, those, uh, over that time in para? Well, in para, well, first and foremost, it's the, like, the fact that we have both ambulatory and seated athletes. That alone just makes it way different than, say, training any able-bodied athletes, whether they're Olympic in the college setting or youth, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're trying to figure out how to get two different types of athletes with two completely different uh, ways of locomoting, so creating motion and sustaining motion, how do we get them to execute the same task? So let's say ambulatory athletes first, right? So these are the guys that I'm going to try to emulate able-bodied athlete training the most, mm -hmm. or at least have it guide my thought process as far as determining what movements are useful. However, you know, ambulatory athlete, that's just a very broad term with a lot of impairments that are just classed into that. So yeah. that's, then it's my job to determine how each impairment is gonna affect their physical outputs, right? Their ranges of motion, the way their body holds muscle tone or how it adjusts to it. And if there's any impairment or any effect on their neuromuscular outputs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge puzzle just trying to estimate where each athlete is at, at least in the start, right? Like if I'm getting a completely new athlete. Yeah. Once I've had athletes for multiple years, like I have, a, I have some athletes that we're going on a fourth season together. Yeah. So I know what they can do. Mm -hmm. I've seen them progress and regress and I can estimate with some, you know, with some fair accuracy where we're going to start and where we need to go and how much more we can improve, right? Yeah. Uh, but with new athletes, or at least ambulatory athletes, that's a big, big uh, consideration that I need to take when we're starting mm -hmm. to make sure I'm not, I don't want to say overstepping, but I'm not overreaching with where I want to start them. Because yeah. I also need to take into account like the psychological effects that, you know, if I'm getting a brand new athlete, they just got to the center, they're excited, and then they get into the gym and they get a bunch of things that they can't do or they're doing them wrong. Uh, and that's just my fault for being too ambitious, that's going to turn them away, right? Yeah. Then the gym is going to become a negative place where they can't do things, and I'm not going to get the best outputs. I'm not going to get the best buy-in or have the best relationship with that athlete. So or, they, or their other coaches on, as well, you know, because that impacts. Or their other coaches too. Yeah. So at least with the ambulatory athletes, those are all things that I'll take into consideration. And then with the seated athletes, you know, they're they're a little bit – different because I always need to think what's the risk versus the reward for any training stimulus not only because of you know the training effect it can have on them or the potential for injury but also how it's going to impact their quality of life so just to give you an example if I have a like say a, a seated athlete and I completely destroy their upper body they still need to get out of the weight room go to the room go to the calf, you know, they still have an entire day worth of moving and pushing ahead of them. Yeah. So if I've put them in such a huge hole or God forbid it costs any type of injury, 
now I'm impairing, like now I'm making their everyday life harder than it needs to be. Mm. So that's always something that I need to consider, like the risk versus the reward. And is every training stimulus absolutely necessary? And do I have the correct ratios to get a strain, training stimulus, but also not cause any adverse effects? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, lastly, with the seated athletes, I also need to think about the lifelong effects of what we're doing. So what lifelong effects am I having on their posture, on their shoulder health? Because as we both know that the lifespan, your athletic lifespan is limited. Yep. You know, you might be able to go into your 40s, but at some point you're going to stop and you're going to keep living. You're going to keep being a person. So if you're chair bound, I need to make sure I'm setting them up for success and not for shoulder replacement surgeries when they're in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think you get to, as you said, you've you've done now four seasons with, with some of the athletes. So you get you can take a longer term approach to where that end goal is in and each year you build further and further on that correct correct like yes like you said i've i've had three to four seasons with some of these guys so we have had the luxury of taking a long-term approach you know uh, that's one of the nice things that i do appreciate about being in the olympic and paralympic setting is that we think in terms of quads yeah we don't think in terms of seasons right which was a little bit different than my previous setting in minor league baseball, where we need to see how far we can develop these guys within the season. Because we honestly, we don't know if they're going to get traded, if they're going to get dropped, if we're going to still have the same athletes the next year. Mm-hmm. So the training, uh, the training window is way shorter. Whereas now we can think, you know, from uh, Tokyo to Paris, from Paris to LA, we can take multi- a multi- multiple year approach and not have to rush the development of the athletes. So we can, we can be more critical on movement quality from the beginning rather than just output, 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 mm. uh, which you know, I do enjoy having that luxury. Well, and I think it's a safer way to go, particularly, as you say, with the Paralympic athletes where you have to actually find out where, where their capabilities are when you first see when you first see them and each of them is different and and if you rush that process you're more likely to to put it, them in in a situation where their long-term capabilities may be compromised or you or there's an injury because you've pushed too fast yeah yeah the the last thing i want to do is push someone really hard for two years and then not get any re- any returns out of them for the next four years, yeah. right? We do want to help these guys and gals have long and healthy careers, yeah. not, you know, two good years and then, and then they're you know, blown. four to five years that are, yeah, they're just blown out. And then, you know, they're not having fun. No one's having fun and no one's performing because that's yeah. the last thing we want. Mm-hmm. And can you give us some examples of what you've had to do to ensure their safety in the gym in terms of their access, especially those who are off-site. Like I know the ones that are on-site you supervise and, and there's a, a couple of other strength and conditioning coaches who can supervise in the gym. But, you know, for example, if you've got someone who's completely vision impaired, how do you go about ensuring their safety in the gym? For sure. So 
there's multiple answers to this. Uh, so let's start with our my resident athletes, right? So say I have a group where I have multiple disabilities within the group. I will try to, uh, you know, have the coach stagger the athletes. So to go back to your example, if I do have a completely visually impaired athlete in there, I can give them more attention mm-hmm. because just by the nature of the disability, that athlete needs me to either spot them, to supervise them, or to guide them around the weight room and make sure you know nothing's out of their way. They're not running into things and getting themselves hurt. Mm. Uh, so the the staggering of the athletes alone, we're coming off the track. That's the first consideration. Secondly, I I tend to take a very conservative approach with my programming, whether it's from a load management standpoint or even a movement progression standpoint. And that alone helps me keep this environment safe, right? Like I'm I'm not going to just load up someone's back uh, with a back squat, for example, without having done two or three cycles of a regress movement just to make sure they, they know the movement pattern. Or, you know, just taking into considerations areas that tend to get more beat up on different disability yet on different impairment types. So, for example, amputees, just from the nature of the blade, forcing, you know, throwing force back into the system, back into the body, their low backs and their hips tend to get more jammed up than other other disabilities. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that alone tells me that spinal loading is something that I'm going to have to keep uh, keep in check yeah. and keep as minimal as possible while still getting the training stimulus that those athletes might need, whether they're single leg or double leg, above the knee or below the knee. Mm-hmm. All of them are going to have some type of impulse coming back into the system. And that just means that spinal health, hip range of motion, and hip mobility are going to need to be a bigger part of their programs and just the things that I check periodically through like different assessments or through different movements throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of covers the resident athletes. Yeah. And as far as uh, offsite athletes go, like so my remote athletes, that's a little bit more of a challenge. So if I'm fairly conservative with my athletes here, I'm even more conservative <laughs> with those guys, to be yeah. honest with you, because uh, yeah. I'm not there, right? And I have to assume the worst even if they are an extremely experienced athlete, because you never know what can happen. And you never want to be the reason why somebody gets hurt and they can't compete or they can't train. So whether that's being really conservative or asking them to video their, like their main list, you know, the things that could be the most dangerous, just so I'm form checking from a week to week basis, from a, from a block to block basis, whenever things progress or regress and, you know, just having a lot of communication uh, I spend a lot of time on my phone when I'm not coaching, just texting people, reviewing mm-hmm. videos, sending them video videos back just so they can see how they're supposed to do things or how I would like them to do things. A lot of my time is spent communicating just to try to minimize whatever risk those guys might have training outside of here. Yep. And so during COVID when there were lockdowns, how did how did that impact in terms of you know, athletes not being able to get into a gym, did you find that there was athletes who lost a lot of their strength or their their fitness? Yes and no. I'd say majority of my the athletes I work with 
were able to find some type of training situation. So a lot of them had good connections at their high schools where they were able to gain access to the track or the high school there. Uh, even if athletes didn't have a gym, like they took it upon themselves to purchase a little bit of equipment, you know, whatever they could find since gym equipment was the first thing to go during the <laughs> COVID quarantine. And, you know, we just had to get creative. So mm. everyone became a remote athlete. Everyone was uh, doing remote programming at home or at whatever training situation they had. But I think only like one or two athletes really had a pretty bad lockdown situation where they couldn't get a training stimulus or a sufficient training stimulus to at least maintain some type of physical qualities. Yep. But most of them found a way to get it done, which, you know, as tough as COVID or the quarantine period was for all of us, I will say one, one of the saving graces was a good amount of my athletes were going out of their way to make things happen. So yep. when you're working with people like that, it makes whatever situation you're in even better, right? Well, even yeah. for as much as I hate remote programming, if I have people that are hungry and trying to get it done, like what excuse do I have to not do my end of the bargain, right? Uh, so that that was that was actually one of the positives of the uh, the quarantine. Yeah, and I guess you know, you, even if you're not going for continued development, but rather uh, more a maintenance of of what they have over that period of time, you know being adaptable to, to finding different ways to do that. Um, I think that COVID forced everyone into that situation, didn't it? It did. But you know what? Like for as many people uh, as there were that had to go into, if you want to call it a maintenance phase for, you know, five to seven months at a time, the ones that were able to get it done still found a way to come out to Tokyo and get it like put on some amazing performances mm. like i think the number of you know not just from the u.s uh alone but world around like we saw so many world records get broken True. in tokyo it was, it was pretty awesome yeah which means people found a way whether yeah. it was traditional means or you know unconventional means yeah cool and do you think that having a physical impairment impacts on their ability to adapt or respond to training or do you find that there's always a response if you if you can find the right way to to stimulate that stress on the muscle i would say the latter so yes there's always going to be a response but the type of impairment is definitely going to affect the training response so mm -hmm. just coming off to the off the top of my head say, an athlete with cerebral palsy, right? Some type of coordination uh, impairment. The way I approach training for those guys would be finding the most minimal stimulus to get the most response, mm -hmm. just because those guys are going to hold muscle tone for longer. So it's going to take them way longer to, uh, to bounce back and recover from a hard stimulus. And at least for the, for the athletes that I get to work with, most of that stimulus needs to come from the track. You know, that, that needs to be the, the number one driver of training adaptation. Anything that we do in the weight room is to gain some type of range of motion, just to, you know, balance out the right or left side, whichever one is affected. You know, we want, do want to drive up physical outputs a tiny bit, but the diminishing return 
of just holding that muscle tone is just not worth it because we're they're going to hold muscle tone for longer you know their muscles are not going to be able to fire so the neurological output is affected as well so if i'm giving them the same stimulus that i am say a totally blind athlete that athlete's going to be able to bounce back within 48 to 72 hours a cerebral palsy athlete or somebody with a coordination impairment it might take them you know, way longer than the 72 hours just to start bouncing back mm-hmm. if I really drive them into the ground. Mm-hmm. So I need to keep that in mind and make sure, you know, the tra- they're here to be track athletes. I need to keep them on the track and keep them performing on the track as long and as best as possible. Yeah. So the balance of where you put the focus in those three priority areas, the, the fitness, the strength power, and the flexibility and you know that side of things that that shifts a little bit according to the type of impairment that you have correct yep cool and you know also having the understanding that if they're sprinting and jumping that is a strength and power stimulus so i don't need to overdo that right so just having an understanding of the sport and the stimulus and response they're going to get just from their sport alone that that's also a luxury yeah. to have. You know, it's not like I'm working with a field sport athlete that's getting absolutely no strength and power development from their sport, and then that's all on me. And then yeah. I'm having to battle for energy demands or battle for uh, training stimuluses between a sport and the training. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, I do have the luxury of having a pretty straightforward uh, sport out here. Yeah. And you you spend a lot of time down at the track, so you're obviously observing what the training that they're doing on a day-to-day basis is, and so that kind of helps you know, when you're communicating with the other coaches and actually observing the athletes in their day-to-day training, not just seeing them when they come into the gym. It does, uh, and I honestly I enjoy that a lot. One because I love track and field. You know, I I ran track in high school and college. I was a half decent athlete. So I understand what they're trying to get done. I understand like, you know, the end goals or the adaptations that the coaches are seeking out on the track or, you know, on the, in the circles or on the runways. So being able to have that context and then relate it to the training up here, it, it makes it a, a lot easier for me to just watch practice and approach coach and be like, hey, What do you think about doing X, Y, and C in the weight room to see if that helps them, um, you know, that helps them to understand what you're trying to get them to do out on the track, whether Mm -hmm. it's their body placement uh, as they're sprinting, you know, different takeoff angles or just trying to apply a force in a different way. You know, it's easy for me to relate it having done it, but I also enjoy watching it and I enjoy watching the process. I like watching the, uh, the gears shift in their heads and then starting to connect one thing to another to another, leading into improved marks. Mm. Perfect. It would be remiss of me not to ask you a nutrition question, seeing as it's a paranutrition podcast. Um, <laughs> how much of an influence do you think nutrition has on the results that you see? Like, can you tell when athletes come into the gym underfueled, and you know what influence do you think that has? Oh, it has a huge influence. I mean, just from 
a nutrition and hydration standpoint alone, right? If we want to simplify what a dietitian does that much, which, you know, just to, just to say, I know you guys do way more, but if we just want to simplify it that much mm-hmm. from a hydration standpoint, if we don't have a, a good dietitian that, or, you know, that just makes it known to the athlete just how much water they need or electrolytes or, you know, how to keep track of those balances before, during sessions and post sessions, or even in between a track and a weight room session, you know, that alone can have a huge effect on how much force I'm going to get out of them. Their, you know, their neuro, their neurological outputs are going to be affected. Uh, and that's just from water and electrolytes alone, let alone fuel, right? Yeah. And I, honestly, when you were here, now that we have Sally, like, I do appreciate that both of you guys take the time to be at practice as much as you can. Kind of like what I do. You, you're out there. You're seeing what they, what they're trying to get done. And, you know, that gives you, that gives you a chance to see the shortcomings, right? Like if an athlete is consistently dying out throughout a workout and the coach doesn't think it's fitness based, Mm. then it might be fuel based. You know, they're under fueling. They're not fueling enough before the session or throughout the session. Uh, and this is where, like, you know, where you guys can come in and help them out. Or, you know, if we're trying to get a big physiological change from an athlete in the weight room, whether it's weight loss or weight gain, or excuse me, mass gaining, you guys are a huge part of that because they can put in all the work that, that they want. But if they're not putting the right type of food in, into their mouth, we're not going to get the changes we want. Mm. And if we do, they're going to be incredibly slow and probably not sustainable. Yeah. So, Again, if we're just simplifying what you guys do, just from those two aspects alone, it's huge. It's massive. Mm-hmm. Let alone what you guys do for all of our athletes in competition. You know that that alone is a huge challenge that I think you guys are incredibly valuable, and you know, a lot of people and a lot of organizations undervalue the just the effect a good dietitian or a good diet dietetics team can have within a, a sport. Mm. Thank you, Goose. <laughs> so what recommendations do you have for other practitioners, whether that's strength and conditioning coaches, whether it's physical therapies, because you also do a lot of interaction with the um, sports medicine team in terms of prevention and injury management. So what recommendations do you have for other practitioners who may be working with para-athletes? Well, one, spend as much time around the sport as possible. Get to know the coach, get to know the athletes, get to know what the end goal is. Secondly, try to have a team approach towards it. You know, like you got to have a good relationship with your coach, a good relationship with your dietitian, your physio, your athletic trainer, whatever you might have. And it needs to be a collective approach, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we need to have communication among support staff, between ourselves and between us and the and the sport coaches. So I think those two things alone will go very far as far as making people's lives easier and helping them to understand what the goal is, what the adaptations that are needed to get there are, and how to go about them. But I, if I had to give one more piece of advice, talk to your athletes. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how much I learned within the first two years by just talking to my athletes because like I said a lot of this is going to be trial and error 
while you know me as a practitioner while i was learning what all these different disabilities were just how impaired or how not impaired these athletes were uh from a physical standpoint how much to push them how much not to push them just talk to your athletes you know at, it's it's as simple as hey i would like to do this movement describe it to them maybe demo it what do you think do you think that's doable uh are you are you okay with trying it out do you think it's safe giving the athletes a voice within your program especially in the paralympic realm is huge because mm-hmm. you know it at the end of the day they're the ones out there trying to compete they're the ones they're doing the training and they're the ones that are going to either reap the benefits or they're going to get hurt if we're doing, you know, something that is stupid or, yeah. you know, just irresponsible when it comes to programming. Mm-hmm. So giving them a voice is, is huge. And what about the athletes themselves? If you've got younger athletes who are coming into parasport or who are interested in it, or even more experienced athletes who don't yet have a, a strength and conditioning coach what what recommendations do you have to them well first and foremost i would encourage them not to be scared of training Mm -hmm. uh this is something i've seen mostly with say people that have been recently injured or young young uh adaptive athletes sometimes you know just because it's not going to look the same as an able-bodied athlete they shy away from it Mm -hmm. even if they have, you know, the potential to be quite great. They tend to be a little bit shyer. So just having more of an open mind and being okay, like failing and being okay, adapting things, you know, that's, uh, I guess that's a new sexy word that's going around, at least in the States. It's adaptive training, adaptive sport. It's within the name. Like we are having to adapt sports and training to an impaired population that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean it's not going to be rewarding. And it doesn't mean that you can't do it. So mm-hmm. it's just not being scared and yep. getting out there and training. Nice. Okay, great. Goose, you've given us a lot of things to think about and a lot of information. Uh, we're going to finish off with my, my usual question. I know you've been listening to the, the podcast, so I'm hoping that you've got your answer all ready to go. What's your favorite food? My favorite food? Well, Liz, I'm a simple guy, and to be honest with you, a well-done hamburger <laughs> is probably my favorite food. You're you going to have to come out uh, to Australia for a half-decent, well-done hamburger. You know, I, I think uh, I think I can make the, the trip out there just for a burger, not <laughs> to hang out with you or to check out your your amazing country, just for the burgers. <laughs> And, uh, you know, to try some kangaroo. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I had meat patties made out of um, brew mints yesterday. Uh, I use it all the time. Nice. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I've seen pictures online of just how jacked kangaroos are. <laughs> so, obviously, if I have a couple a couple of kangaroo <laughs> burgers, maybe I'll be able to stack on some, some pounds finally. <laughs> so, it, it's worth the trip. Definitely worth the investment. Uh, for sure. Well, thank you very much for your time, Goose. We really, really appreciate it and the, the generosity of your your insight into um, the work that you're doing and look forward to seeing more great uh, outcomes coming from 
the Chula Vista Training Center and all the track and field athletes in the US. Of course. Thank you for, well, thank you first and foremost for inviting me and thinking of me. Uh, I'm very flattered. Uh, and thank you to you. As far as I know, there's not a lot of Paralympic podcasts out there, especially from somebody that was in the game for as long as you were. So thank you for putting this on. It's a great resource. And, you know, I have added it to my to my weekly rotation of podcasts. So keep up the good work. And thank you for bringing light to a really, a really fun movement to be a part of. My pleasure. Goose has a great way of explaining how he approaches his strength and conditioning programming with athletes and some of the difficulties and I guess not difficulties but some of the creative ways that you can uh, approach that side of, of things. Please join us next time as we talk to Bridie Keane who is an ex-Australian wheelchair basketball player. In the meantime, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. As usual, if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave them in the comments box and feel free to share this with your social media.